Okay, hey everybody, uh, Derek here. Uh, evil chat number 11. This is going to be a good one with Mike Young um, on eccentrics. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think there's a, it's, it's pretty technical, quote unquote, I guess. Um, we really, right off the bat, get into it. It's, it was a great discussion. Mike's such a great resource. And I'm going to do hopefully more stuff with him in the future uh, on this podcast. But anyways, before I get into that, um, there's a couple things that I want to go over. A couple things have been on my mind I want to talk about. So here we go. I've been taking Matt Jordan's uh, online strength course. Um, it started maybe a week ago, I guess. It's a whole series of courses on strength training. Um, I, uh, I originally... Uh, Full disclosure here. I don't. Uh, I'm not advertising this for him. I'm just sharing this with you. I don't get anything from it. I, uh, other than um, I, uh, I offered up uh, a sprint bundle uh, for everybody that signed up for the uh, for the initial registration, and in return, I got access to the courses because I wanted to do some upskilling in that. And it's actually been about 20 years since I've taken a formal coach development or formal uh, course you know I of course I I self-educate a lot I do a lot of reading or I used to do I used to do more reading but I'm getting way more into it these days um, you know and I've I, of course when I go to conferences I sit in on, on lectures but it's been a long time since I've taken an, an actual course that is like a, you know this is a big commitment this course there's quite a bit to it it's broken up into a number of different courses but I'm going to take the entire thing and I'm I'm really enjoying it uh, and it's really interesting because the last when I was a younger coach like back in the 90s I was big into the strength um, have always been big into the strength and uh, but that's when I did a lot of formal education on it I took courses with Paula Quinn and and you know did a lot of self-education a lot of therapy um, uh, education I was doing a lot of therapy back then things like that and uh, it's interesting to have this big gap between that time and starting to take this now and to see you know, comparing what, I mean, I was deep into it back then. And uh, this course is even deeper into it and to this course with Matt that I'm taking and to see what's come out since then and see what has either changed or some of the new information that's come out is pretty interesting. Uh, I probably, Stu and I will talk about it at some point, but it's, you know, what I've learned. I, I need to get more and more into it, but anyways, you know, it's been really good. But it's also highly technical. So it's, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's deep into the science of things. And so, of course, what's been on my mind has been uh, a lot of what Stu and I have been talking about in terms of the, you know, the division, I guess you might call it, between science-based coaching. It shouldn't be a division, but it seems to be science-based coaching and experience-based coaching or old school. I don't know, whatever the whatever the term you want to use for that is. And I, I don't really, I've never seen myself in either one of those camps. Um, I've never really seen myself in any camp, to be honest with you. But, uh, 
But, you know, I like, I love getting into the deep dive science of things where I can actually absorb it. I don't always implement everything, of course, um, but I like learning. I like, and I'm curious. So for me, something like this is really good, but it's been making me think a lot about this issue. And of course, I offer a course on the site that's, you know, a very deep dive into, it's like 60 videos or something into um, this Bondercheck method, which is a pretty sophisticated method of training. Um, it's actually quite simple in its essence, but to explain it all can be, a, you know, takes a, takes a bit of time because um, there's a lot of nuances to it. But, but, you know, when you do these things or take these things, you can't avoid getting around terminology and you you know because it's just the nature of it um there's there's just no way to have a real conversation about some of these things without you know getting deep into it and so when you know last week or earlier this week when I had a guy take a shot at me uh on Twitter about the Bondercheck thing trying to goad me into uh you know, I don't know what it was. I don't know what he was trying to do. And I know this guy, or at least I thought I did. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, you can't, you know, how do you do that on Twitter? Right? Like you can't like, I mean, this guy was, you know, mouthing off about stuff. He had zero clue, zero, uh, zero insight about, and you know, what do you do? So normally in situation like I just leave it alone. I, in fact, Half, most of the time I don't even see it because I never really checked Twitter, but um, I was, um, uh, a notification came up. And so, and so uh, anyway, so I replied with, you know, uh, um, trying to explain it. And again, you know, it's kind of hard to explain some of these things without, um, you know, without getting into some terminology. And this is, you know, essentially, uh, you know, this, I allowed this guy to green light me right so it's just sort of sitting there waiting for <laughs> for uh, for me to use a term that he could just you know uh hit back with and of course i did because i knew he would and so um yeah i just left it at that but um but you know it 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 just to me is another example of the problem that we have, not just as sport, but everywhere today where people get into their little, you know, their little cliques or their silos or their, or their little, uh, you know, their little fiefdoms and they, you know, which is fine, except if, if there's anything I've learned from my experience is that uh, there are, so many different ways of producing athletes. And when I see people get, you know, that are insecure about whatever uh, their chosen method or their programming or their coaching in general or whatever you want to call it, that they're willing to, you know, take shots at other people publicly, especially on something like Twitter, which is, I mean, let's face it, you know, uh, Face to face, I don't think that that would have had that would have played out the way it did. Let's put it that way. So, um, you know, I just don't see that in really, really good coaches um, at any level. It's not just at 
the high end, but it's at the lower end too. I mean, coaches that are, you know, comfortable in what they're doing and willing to, you know, uh, have an honest conversation about whatever it is, uh, whether it's, you know, methodology or technique, you know, they, they, they don't get like that. And so it's, it's really kind of discouraging to, uh, to see it because, you know, I know like some of these guys, they influence a lot of younger coaches and coaches coming up and, it's not, uh, you know, in this day and age, is we, we need less of that and we need more honest and real discussion and real sharing. And I say that as someone who came from, you know, like when, when I was a young coach, I was just like that. Like I, I thought, you know, I thought there was a secret or one way to doing things and everybody else was doing it wrong and all of that. And, you know, I'd collect information. I wouldn't share it. I wouldn't tell anybody what I was doing and all that. And, and that changed when I met Dan and I started going to Texas because remember before that I was in a very isolated environment. Right. And, you know, it was, which was really good in a lot of ways, but in bad in other ways, because there weren't other coaches and that around for me to, uh, you know, to bounce things off off of and learn from. And when I went down to Texas the first time, I remember saying to Dan, uh, I distinctly remember this conversation. I think we were driving uh, in his car and I said, you know, you don't, you know, I'm surprised, man. You just, you share everything. Cause he used to give me the keys to his office. Say just, there's a photocopier, there's the filing cabinet, you know? And I, one night, I think I stayed there till like two in the morning, at the university of Texas and hauled out a bunch of stuff and went to, you know, anyways, and uh, he said to me in, in classic Dan fashion, he said, uh, he, he said, you know, there's the Chinese have this uh, parable or saying or whatever that in order for a lake to stay clear, there must be water flowing into it and there must be water flowing out of it. And I thought, you know, wow, like that sort of, that was the beginning of a big change for me. And then, you know, that led, I eventually evolved more into a coach educator than I am. Uh, you know, I spend more time doing that probably aside from right now and really back into the coaching, but you know, the last decade or so I've done much more of that than I have actual hands-on coaching. Although I've tried to keep my coaching pretty consistent and I, I don't know, I just struggle now with, uh, when I run into these situations and, uh, you know, it's funny because just as all this is going on yesterday, uh, we, we, we have, you know, over the last couple months, I've been trying to sort out a, a, a training, uh, venue for the athlete I coach and myself. And I ended up at this high school, uh, working out a deal with them to help them, uh, with their, with their program in return for some access and, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a bit of a long process and a few layers and I had to go through a number of different people. Uh, and you know, all I'm, all I was looking for is a, a throwing circle to throw out of. And, uh, you know, throws coaches know that when you are an outsider and you move into another throws coaches turf, that, you know, that can be a problem because, you know, they want things set up a certain way and, you know, all of this and any, anyways. And so over time, I, I had a hard time contacting this particular throws coach at this high school. And then, you know, slowly over time, I started to learn more and more about him. 
and he was a former thrower himself, uh, quite accomplished. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I found out like this school is a Christian school. And then I found out that he was a pastor and I was like, oh my God, I'm in so much trouble. Like, this is going to be so difficult because he's going to, he's going to listen to the podcast. He's going to judge me and all of this, <laughs> all of this, uh, you know, falling back into those old, old ways of thinking that I, when I was a younger coach and, uh, and insecure. Right. And so I guess, I guess I, what I'm saying is I was a little insecure about this situation. And then of course I meet the guy and the guy is just the greatest guy. He is, this guy is fantastic. And, and he's been so helpful and he's so excited that, you know, that, uh, there's another throws coach around and we're going to do this. And he, oh, he's got all these big plans. And I mean, the guy's just, he's unbelievable. And, uh, he's unbelievable in other ways. And this is a story I was going to tell you is that yesterday, as I was leaving the facility, he, this guy organizes, uh, free food, give, um, free food giveaways. Cause this high school is in a pretty, uh, pretty rough area in Chicago. It's uh, just in the, in the West end of Chicago. And it's, uh, it's, it's, well, it's my close friends who I filled in on some of the info know what I'm talking about. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty rough. And, um, so they use the school or the facility parking lot there a couple right now, a couple of times a week, they go through this organization that gives out free food. There are these big boxes of food and people can just drive in and take as much as they want. It's really cool. Like the work this guy does is fantastic. And he stands out there, you know, and he's this ex thrower and, he, and he's still got a really, you know, he's a, he's a, he's got a good build to him and he's, and he's, he's hyper, right? He's like, he's, he's an excited, excitable guy. Like I, he's out there with this big sign that says free food and he's yelling at people, come on, free food. And then he has all these athletes that are in the, they got to, people got to drive in or walk in and they, you know, drive, they drive through, uh, you know, they got to, you know, they pull up and there's pallets of food and we're loading them. And I'm there with a bunch of the kids from this school. And, uh, you know, I, I was driving out and I saw the, I saw him getting ready for this. I gave him a call. I said, Hey, do you want some help? He said, yeah, yeah, we could use some help. So I went to help out. And, uh, and here's why I'm telling the story. It's just, you know, he's out on the road. I'm there with a bunch of these kids in there, you know, and okay. So I'm not a religious person. Um, although I'm very open to, um, ideas and I'm very open to something, I guess, but I'm not formally religious. I went to church as a kid, so it's not like, um, you know, it's just not, it's just, you know, it's not part of my life or my family's life. And so, um, but I'm, you know, I, I, my life, I think I said with Stu in the, in the I story, like one of my closest friends is deeply, deeply religious. My best friend, actually. So I, um, you know, it's, I, you know, I feel very comfortable around those environments, but something this day, like there's a lot of kids and they were, I mean, you know, there's a lot of sort of, uh, a lot of religious talk and they're playing, you know, religious uh, rock music and that. And I kind of, just mildly, just the slightest bit of uncomfortableness was there. And I was surprised at myself just for a moment. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't anything that I was going to leave or anything like that. I just thought, man, I, it's just been such a long time since I've been around that. And, you know, I, my natural reaction to a situation like that 
I've learned since I quit drinking is when I feel uncomfortable in a situation, I know I have to put myself into that situation more. And the point of all of that is I think if you're a coach and you hear or learn about something that is different and it makes you feel uncomfortable because you don't understand it or you don't know about it, then you need to get into it. You need to explore. You need to look at it because not that you have to do it. <laughs> like, you know, I could be working with this guy a lot. Like I could be working with this guy five days a week and, uh, and I'm coaching his son. I'm teaching his son how to throw the hammer right now. And, uh, I would say this guy's name and the throws guys out there would probably know this guy because he threw quite like he was a 60 plus meter thrower in college, but I haven't told him I was going to say this. So I don't want to use his name without, without his permission. But anyways, and, um, uh, I mean, this guy's going to be nothing but a friend because he's, he's just the greatest guy. And, and I look forward to some conversations, but you know, like I said, that what happened yesterday, I was like, Whoa, yeah, man. Okay. I need to, I need to be here more. Plus it's, 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 you know, it's meaningful what, what this place is doing. The, the whole story of this high school is incredible. I'll tell it someday. Uh, it, it's just, it's amazing. It's a high school that for disadvantaged kids and it's just the guy who started it and ran. It's a different guy. He's, I've heard just amazing stories about this guy, but I haven't met that guy yet. And um, anyway, so that's my spiel about this. When you, you know, and this is a message to everybody. When you, when you, if you get in a situation where you don't like something and you're uncomfortable with it because you don't know about it, then crying out loud, just, just, just look into it. Like, just look into it. Just ask some questions. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to hurt anybody else. That's what all the best coaches I know do. Does not mean that you have to adopt it, right? I don't, I can talk to my religious friends and not be religious. I think they're going to be okay with that, <laughs> right? At least my best friend is. And man, he's, I, I have full reign to say and do whatever I want around him, man. And, but he, you know, he takes, he, he gets it, right? Anyways, I think the coaching community needs to, in some places with some people, needs to just get it a little more okay all right so enough of that so i uh, and apologies for the rant there but today's podcast mike young who is i uh, got you know the more i get to know mike the more i uh, i get to like him um and respect him for what he does i just you know he is of, i think i said this before of, of all the content on my site i think it's it is overall the best presented He's so clear in what he does, and he is, I mean, you can ask him any question, he'll have an answer for it. If he doesn't, he'll let you know. It, it's amazing. So, um, you know, and you really should go to the site and check out his bio to see what he's done because he's one of these guys that if you haven't heard of him before, then you'd be really surprised at what this, the accomplishments and the pedigree behind this guy. It's amazing. But anyways... This was a great talk on eccentrics. 
something I was not super familiar with. Uh, I know what it is. I played around a little bit with it, but man, did I ever get schooled in this when I was, uh, when I was doing this and even more so when I was editing it and I had to listen through the whole thing. Yeah, it's a really good chat. So for better or for worse, here is my evil chat with Dr. Mike Young. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for uh, having me back on. Yeah, thanks for coming back on. I uh, th That was a good conversation last time. Um, I just sort of getting into the editing of it, and it's uh, not that I edit much of it, but it's uh, I get to listen to it again, and it's good. It's good. I think you and I could, uh, we, we could do quite a bit there um, on that topic, but maybe for another day. Um, so... I want to talk most about eccentrics mainly because it's really the one area of uh, sort of the strength realm that I'm that I'm really not super familiar with. I mean, you know, I probably I, I mean, to me, eccentrics, I'm probably 20 years behind the curve on it. Right. So to me, eccentrics is putting a ton of weight on and dropping it as slow as you can. And and that's it. Right. <laughs> but when I was, you know, in watching uh, and talking to Stu, although I haven't talked to Stu a lot about this, but just a little bit back when I was coaching the Hammer Girls um, back in Kamloops, uh, we did a little bit of it. Uh, but really, when I watched your uh, presentation for the uh, for the ICAE, I was like, wow, like when I started looking at it and when I when I started seeing it as an extension of what I know as the force velocity curve, then I really started to get intrigued by it. And I started to, and just, just everything you had to say in that lecture was really good. So, so let's, uh, so if you don't mind, let's go there. You, you, are you good with that? Sure. Sure. Okay, yeah. So, cool. we'll, so let go yeah, ahead. Let's start with the defining it maybe. Yeah. I think from a, from a purely textbook standpoint, when we talk about eccentrics, we're talking about the joint lengthening typically people associate it almost interchangeably with the the joint moving into uh, extension while the musculotendinous unit lengthens under tension those two things aren't quite uh, completely overlapping they are highly related but they're not exactly the same especially when we get into really fast uh, eccentrics the kind that are really really relevant for sport but um, you know I think you touched on what gave me a little bit of an epiphany and that's the uh, force velocity curve. I think most people when they think of that tend to uh, have the mindset of looking at the right side of that curve and that's pretty much where the weight room excels, typical weight room methodology where we're moving heavily loads, heavy loads uh, relatively slowly and sometimes some lighter loads at reasonable speeds. Uh, never anything that could approximate what is seen in most sports, however. Uh, but what weight, the weight room is great for is concentric strength development. And uh, it's what most people assess strength by. Anytime someone asks for your, your max, what they're actually referring to is your uh, weakest range of motion uh, in a given movement in the concentric 
contraction phase. So that's the weakest range of motion and the weakest contraction type because we have the three contraction types, isometric, eccentric, concentric, and the concentric is the weakest. So we're literally, when we refer to someone, uh, what ask someone what their strength is, the typical response is going to be uh, embodied by the weakest range of motion in the weakest contraction right. type. Uh, and I never, you know, the, you know, it's funny you say that because I never thought of it that way, but but it makes makes sense. No, and and no, probably yeah. the least relevant for really ballistic sports. You know, uh, when you get into activities that are just incredibly dynamic and have really short contact times or f- times to apply force, that's where the weight room really has a has a shortfall, and that's why you see athletes who can excel, say in elite level sprinting who are just terrible in the weight room because that transfer is quite limited if you don't do things correctly. And that transfer stops somewhere around 20 meters. You know, it's, there's going to be benefits in terms of injury prevention and overall stimulus and so forth, but actual transfer to performance is pretty well documented that there's, it, it really starts to drop off a cliff at around uh, 20 meters or so. Uh, We'll see. Are you talking about, so you're talking about concentric, the ability to apply concentric force? Correct. So concentric strength. So when someone talks about uh, a strength maximum or, you know, having a lot of strength and having it be relevant for sport, uh, you know, you'll, you'll get opposing parties and one will say, hey, look at guys like Dwayne Chambers. He can squat 600 pounds. And Ben Johnson, he squats 600 pounds. But then on the flip side of that, you can also say, well, Carl Lewis could barely squat 100 pounds or whatever it is. That's obviously mm-hmm, hyperbole. Mm-hmm. Or Usain right. Bolt, he can, there's right. videos of him cleaning 135 pounds with terrible technique online. You know, my, my uh, 13, 14-year-old daughter can do that. So uh, and she's nowhere near as fast. So clearly there's a disconnect between running insanely fast, which is, I I like to use that as an example because it's probably the single most neuromuscularly challenging activity we could do. There's really nothing that has, requires that level of stiffness in the legs and, uh, and, and what we develop in the weight room. So this, I'm a big weight room guy. I love the weight room, grew up in the weight room. I, you know, I have family who went to Commonwealth games and weightlifting. I have, uh, you know, oh, really? was a GA GA in uh, in the weight room before I was a GA on the on the wait, track. Wait a minute, Commonwealth Games in weightlifting? Yeah, were they Canadian or Jamaican. British? Jamaican. Jamaican. <laughs> wow. My family's okay, mostly cool. Jamaican. Yeah. So wow, anyhow, okay, cool. Uh, you know, this I, I'm a big weight room guy. Love it. Love the weight room. But when you start to see that there's this little disconnect, especially in higher level performers, um, that it really kind of got my wheels turning. How do I, how do I make this, how do I make this uh, work? How do I reconcile this discrepancy? And a guy, a good friend of mine, Dave Karen, who was the high jump coordinator for USA track and field and a uh, high performance coordinator for USA track and field for some time. You know, he really that's kind K-E-R-I-N, of, right? That's I know right. that name. Yep. Right. Yeah, and that's he's right. probably yeah, one of the initial is. ones that kind of turned me on to the role of eccentrics. And then I started to really delve into it and take some deep dives into it. And um, how do I develop it? How do we, what are the physiological pillars of eccentric strength? And really what you start to see is that all this stuff we do in the weight room is really fantastic for developing 
concentric strength um, relatively slowly. But the, the things that help us concentrically are oftentimes quite different than what we need to do eccentrically. So concentrically, we can apply more force when we move really slow and the load is really high. But eccentrically, we're anywhere between 15 to 200% stronger than we are concentrically. So this is a little bit of a, this is a little bit difficult to wrap your mind around, but. Did you say 15 to 200%? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So uh, you can apply way more force if the joint is lengthening and at speed. Uh, so Right, so for short periods. Very short periods yeah. and for under very high velocity. So in, mm. in the weight room, typically you think, what, where are we strongest in terms of max, maximum strength? It's when the load is really high and we typically are just grinding away. It's moving really slowly. But eccentrically, it's actually the complete opposite. So the load is really high, but we actually apply more force when we yield faster. So we're actually are better suited to apply higher loads eccentrically when we get to that far left side of the force velocity continuum that isn't really touched on in traditional weight room methodology where we need to load well in excess of someone's concentric maximum and force a yielding. And that's where we're going to start to get these adaptations. Now, things like sprinting and plyometrics, that does it. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's the if it's the full picture of what we want to do, and it certainly leaves some uh, some areas neglected. But you know, when I say we need to train eccentrically, in some some aspects, it's uh, it's new that maybe people are starting to talk about it. But it's not new so much in that people were sprinting before. They may not have known exactly what was going on. They were doing plyometrics. They may not have known exactly mm -hmm. what was going on, but they knew it was mm -hmm. developing this power. Yeah, and I mean, it, because it because in most exercises, there's, I mean, it's part and parcel with concentrics, right? Right. So, always... so you can't really separate the two. So what right. we would consider like athletic power, just generally speaking, or anything, anything even remotely associated with speed, is really comes down to how well we can break ourselves moving in one direction and then reaccelerate ourselves moving in the other direction. So a lot of times it's difficult for people to conceptualize that for sprinting, but really what, what's going on here is I'm touching down at negative 9.8 meters per second because of gravity. I have to reaccelerate myself back into the ground and the best sprinters are on and off the ground incredibly fast, 0.08 of a second or so. And a lot of times they're not doing that because they're insanely strong in the weight room. What they're able to do is have uh, very efficient stretch shortening cycle, very fast stretch shortening cycle, and very stiff tendons. Um, okay, can I just ask a really uh, elementary question uh, about that? So, is there a correlation between have I mean has sports science established a correlation between the the sprinters that can get off the ground the fastest and their maximal strength? abilities in the weight room They're, in general and i'm saying in general so what we would classically think as maximal strength ability so i guess i'm talking concentrics but but you're going to go to eccentric so what what like school me on that so sorry the any relationships that exist with weight room uh numbers metrics 
typical weight room methodology that where you'd have a barbell and some some load those really are only going to be uh, correlated with acceleration type capacities where the time for force application is longer, longer where the speeds right. are slower where we're starting mm -hmm. at a lower velocity the way i like to think about it is um, kind of like i, I Go ahead. I'm sorry. You know, spinning a wheel, right? You, you turn mm -hmm. your bike upside down when you're a kid right. and you want to spin the wheel. Well, yeah. up to a certain point, you can spin the wheel just by brushing your hand against the wheel. Right. And But then once that wheel starts moving really quickly, you put your hand to accelerate the wheel and it actually does the opposite, right? You slow the right. wheel down every time you touch it. Because yeah, you can't move your hand fast enough. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. concentrically, that's what happens with the body, right? The body becomes so fast in a sprint, say... Or, you know, you see the same thing in throwing events or jumping events. The body's moving so fast that you can no longer continue to accelerate it because you can't produce that force concentrically or we've exceeded our eccentric force generating capacity. So, uh, you know, I think we're looking at this combination of things that aren't really addressed well in, in the weight room. And that would be tendon stiffness and... Uh, stretch shortening cycle in and in you know i think the uh one thing that really drives this home for me and i made a chart one time that to kind of illustrate this is that if we just take the most conservative estimate and say uh eccentrically we're 20 percent stronger than we are concentrically so eccentrically 20 percent stronger than concentrically now you just do a little math there you crunch some numbers and your typical weight room methodology for most athletes is going to have them lifting somewhere in the range of like 75 to 90% a good part of the year, right? So right. 75 to 90%, we say, okay, that's stimulus threshold for concentric force generation. That That's pretty well proven. It's, you know, you, there might be some people that say plus or minus five, five percentage points or something like that. Or maybe we want to work on power and we go a little bit lower, but that's 75 to 90% is a sweet spot for many, many sports. Mm -hmm. And um, then you just crunch that numbers. Okay. So let's multiply that times 1.2, right? 120%. Well, that puts our, that puts the 90% barely at stimulus threshold. If we're going to equivalent, uh, equivalent ranges, if we assume equivalent ranges are necessary for eccentric loading, that 90% that we used to develop concentric barely even gets to stimulus threshold to train concentric. So what you're saying is that, at, sorry to interrupt, but what you're saying is that at, only at the highest, highest intensities of traditional concentric lifting are we even barely getting into the area where that, that is going to, that is going to create an adaptation eccentrically. Right. That's that correct. Right? Yeah. Okay. That's right. So, uh, how do we, how do we get there? I mean, we, we, we need to, uh, we need to load in excess of that. And then, then you run into the kind of conundrum of like, how do we do that safely? Right. When I was a little right. bit younger and a little bit dumber, uh, and really ambitious and kind of going down this rabbit hole, I would, I would frequently do things like, uh, you know, pin squats to pins basically with a, you know, I think I once worked athletes up to 125% to pins set at nine, you know, a full squat range of motion. So they would take the bar out, maybe do a couple half squats at 125% of their max, and then try to slowly lower it down to the pins. 
we'd unload the bar, we'd put it back up again, next athlete hops in the rack. But you can imagine putting 125% of your back squat max on your on the bar, stepping out from a rack, and then doing a quote-unquote controlled descent down to the pins. Not a lot of people's backs or knees like that, right? It's not it's just not a comfortable thing to do and a lot mm-hmm. of things can go wrong. So I started to come up with other ways that we can uh, potentially reach stimulus threshold uh, without without the risk, say, because to kind of go back to that night, you know, that, that analogous uh, concentric to eccentric and stimulus threshold, that if you use 90% on the bar, that's about 75% of your eccentric maximum, eccentric. Right. even in the most conservative estimate. So right. we're barely, 90% yeah. barely gets to stimulus yeah. threshold for eccentric. Yeah. And that's 90%. Yeah, that's right. That's 90% of what you're, yeah. Right. So we have to exceed that in some fashion. And there's a couple ways we can do it. We, eccentrically, it's quite interesting. You can, you can achieve eccentric overload without even utilizing a heavy mass-based load if the load of impact is very high. And that's why mm-hmm. things like plyometrics, plyometrics and sprinting can right. get there. Uh, because the load that you experience is not indicative of, say, the the mass of your body weight. It's indicative of the ground reaction forces. And you can kind of take extrapolate that out and do things like, well, let's say, uh, I don't know, if I were to throw a ball into the air and then catch it, right? Well, that that is now some form of loading that far exceeds the the mass of the of the ball. Uh, I started to use flywheel technology quite a bit, which is, you know, has been a little bit of a game changer for me just simply because we can really safely overload the eccentric. And now there's a handful of kind of cool technologies out there, all quite expensive, which will, you know, you get into some machine and it can effectively overload the eccentric portion and weight release on the concentric. But you know, I've got a lot of toys to kind of address this, whether it's weight releasers. So you, mm-hmm. you know, you squat or your bench with more weight, you lower it down, the weight falls off, and then you can concentric, concentrically move it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, they, they have like the hooks and they the have hooks, the, that's right. you know, yep. all the, right, right. And then I've, okay. you know, have got, uh, kind of came up with a handful of other little methodologies that require no additional technology. For example, you could do... Uh, you could do a deadlift on your concentric. That's a much stronger lift. So let's say we use 75%, 80% on a deadlift. We do that on the concentric, but then instead of lowering it as a deadlift, we lower it as a RDL. So now we've used a stronger um, lift and then we lower it on oh, a weaker lift. Oh, so now we've that's shifted the clever, actually. Yeah. the uh, so. the to stimulus threshold. Or you know, you could do squ- uh, lower, take the take the weight out of the rack. Lower mm-hmm. with just one mm-hmm. leg, down to a box. Say, put the other foot down and then stand up. So now okay. we could get way above eccentric threshold like that, quite quite safely, and not have to worry about crushing someone's spine or you know b- blowing out their knees. Okay, so hey, could, could we just back up just a second here for all the listeners who may not be super familiar? 
with uh, with what we're talking about when we're talking about the force velocity curve. So I, I think everybody listening to this is going to understand what we mean when we say the force velocity curve force on the on the uh, vertical axis, velocity on the horizontal and the way that curve looks. But what we're talking about here, and I don't want to go too deep into this because I'm more interested in what you were just talking about, but I do just want to clarify this. So when, when we're talking as we go up to the top of the traditional or what we, we all know of as the normal force velocity curve, uh, you get up into the, the highest levels, 100% of intensity, and then you're basically you're hitting isometric strength, right? And yep. then the way the curve extends after that when we're talking eccentrics is it goes, <clears throat> curves up and over to the left and then starts to come back down. Can you just run us through that just briefly in terms of what we're, what we're looking at there, just so people have a picture of it? Yeah, so at, at lower loads, what we're seeing is that we're just slowing it down. Uh, and a lot of your traditional eccentrics or negatives that, say, a bodybuilder might do in the gym or sometimes is used in athletic populations is almost certainly used at sub-maximal loads. Uh, and then once we start to crest over to the other side, so to speak, on the far side of uh, isometrics, so this is beyond what we could actually super yeah we could right. we can't overcome it so we are going to yield to it now at at say 102 percent um we can almost stop it right we can almost pause that load before it comes crashing down on us but once you get out further and further the our ability to slow it down becomes less and less. But what's actually interesting is that our body actually becomes more efficient at producing force at those higher loads, even though we're yielding to it, we're, we're being overcome by it. So this is where things get a little bit tricky for some people to understand, you know, how do you, how do we know that you're applying more force when I'm just yielding to it? I'm, you know, right. it's a it's a foreign concept for most people in the weight room. Like if I tell you what my bench press maximum is, you can say, okay, you can move that much weight. But how, how do you make sense of how much weight is overcoming me? Well, it does take a little bit of uh, fancy sports technology equipment, whether that is tensiometers or a force platform. But we know that you can apply significantly more force eccentrically, especially as you get up to that upper left side of the curve um and that's and before it starts coming down again yeah it doesn't come well it'll come down if we are that's basically like a fail point so it'll stay it'll it'll ramp up pretty steeply then it'll mm -hmm. level off and if we mm -hmm. reached a point where the, you just can't you, you just can't, can't slow it down do anything it's gonna right? crush so this is <laughs> you know i think this is where people see things like uh, a tr the triple jumper whose hop, their hop phase was too big and they just land and the leg just buckles. That's what buckles, that is, right? right? So there's okay. no overcoming that. The leg just said, hey, you're going to blow me out if I try to even yeah. keep up with this. So there's no, yeah, yeah. There's no amortizing that or at right. least you don't fit. You just, you just you're done. Your body just <laughs> gives in. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I get it. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, so. Okay, well, here's here's a question then, just out of curiosity. Is there any evidence that working only in that zone of the force velocity curve past um, isometric and only working eccentric 
will yield res- like what would those say I did it in bench press for you know uh, a six week cycle would I I mean would I see a better results in my concentric lifting yeah that's actually what's interesting it's one of the few areas that somewhat defies specificity at least on a superficial level so the in the research is quite uh interesting because the eccentric training seems to have better transfer to concentric in a way that concentric training does not transfer to eccentric but i think a lot of that comes down to this the fact that the specificity is what may be lacking in terms of specificity of contraction type. What we're actually doing is being hyper-specific in terms of the loading and the tension that's created at the muscle. So yeah. for example, the if we were to do, it is, there are several studies that looked at concentric only training. So somehow taking out the eccentric phase of the lift, eccentric only training, and then traditional weight training, which has a load, the oh. person is bearing the load on the eccentric and concentric portion of the lift. And if we were to compare the two extremes, concentric versus eccentric only, what you see is that the eccentric training will yield better results on on concentric strength uh, for hypertrophy, for max strength, and for kind of field-based indicators of power like jumping and sprinting. Now, the trick here is that how do I how do I get to that side of the curve safely, right? And right. and also, I don't want to kind of stir the boat too much and say, hey, everybody should be going over to the uh, far side of the isometric curve. I'm a firm believer that we need to have pretty high levels of kind of traditional foundational strength. So, you know, while I'm not holding up the two times body weight squat as some kind of holy grail, I do think it is a pretty decent indicator of baseline strength. So, and there's, there is quite a bit of research to suggest that, hey, if you get up to that level, or you, you need to get up to that level before you're going to start to see significant diminishing returns from concentric strength development. So, you know, a two, whether your exercise is a squat or a deadlift or whatever, we, we all know the kind of uh, correlate strengths between these different exercises, but the squat's probably the one that's most studied. But let's say I like to get guys to a, at least two times body weight squat before I start to on the men's side and maybe like 1.7 on the women's side before I start to really shift, shift in emphasis. Uh, I've got one guy. Body weight. Why, why is that just, is it, it's just traditionally that's where you think people have enough strength to handle the eccentric. So I work primarily. Yeah. Well, it's more like a, we're start, that's where we'll start to see diminishing returns. So I'm, I'm kind of a big believer in not using uh, a methodology that doesn't need to be used yet. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, me too. I, yeah, totally. right. So I, I don't, uh, I totally th- get you. This there. is yeah. a very, this is a very American analogy here, but it's kind of like, don't shoot a bullet that you don't need to shoot, you know? Yeah. Um, no, so exactly. Once it's you know, out of the barrel, bond, you don't you know take what? it back. And Bonder, Bonder Chuck says that all the time. He says, he says, uh, you know, a, a coach needs to change and introduce new methodologies every he I mean, he just throws yeah. these numbers out but he says every five years he says you you can't keep doing you know and anyways i let's not so go if, there but if you use yeah. the really advanced stuff early you can't go back you know if, if yeah, you if you exactly. take your 12 year old and have them jump off a 10 foot box sure their eccentric overload is going to be 
huge, but then what do you do when they're 14 years old? Set them off a 20-foot building or something? Right. So, right, right. <laughs> you know, we, it can start to get absurd. We just don't need to shoot I've that I've thought bullet. about that with my kids, though, but for other reasons. <laughs> you know, so how do we safely progress over there? So, you know, I, I will do something that I'd call surf the curve, which is, you know, do that low, low, far right side of the curve, concentric focused work. And then we gradually build our way up to the maximum strength work, to the heavy maximal isometric work, and then to um, the, the the lower loading eccentric. And I don't mean lower loading lower loading on that left side of the curve. And then we gradually work our way up to the to the far left, which is high load, high velocity. Okay. Uh, and then if we want to make it even more relevant for uh, athlete, we start to incorporate some shock loading, which is the imposition of a load really quickly. Shock right. loading is, you know, your typical plyometrics, but you can also do it in, in the weight room as well. You know, um, there's a little bit of a shock load, even in catching an Olympic lift. There's a, there's uh, mm -hmm. we'll do things where you let, let bars free fall and then catch it stiff basically. Right. And those are all ways to introduce shock load that uh, where the load on the body exceeds what the load of the bar is or whatever implement you're Course. using. Right. Yeah. So, so, so you have two, you, you, generally speaking, there's sort of two measures of intensity there. One is the absolute load where we we're talking about super maximal load loads. Right. And the other is, loads over time that are that are uh, uh, you know applying a load over uh, a heavier load a heavy load over a short period of time i mean you could do that with body weight right i mean but you're talking more no you're talking loading under a short period of time am i like I, where correct ideally okay. that if we really want to talk about how we could increase transfer from what we might do in the weight room or any activity for that matter to sporting activities, uh, we need to be able to apply force very fast. Uh, you know, it comes down to that bicycle wheel again, you know, is your, is your, uh, the literally the muscle machinery cannot keep up with what is actually happening. The, the cross bridges cannot relax form and pull again quick enough to be able to contribute force app propulsive force application there's it's actually okay. a thing called muscle drag you know so hmm. um we want to be able to uh you know be able to we need to we before we can ever be propulsive we need to decelerate it doesn't matter it's relevant for all sports really you know there's a handful of a handful of uh areas where you sports maybe where you could say it's not super relevant like a swimmer doesn't need to have high eccentric force capacity a, a hockey player probably doesn't you know they're just gliding along but you better believe a volleyball player does a football mm -hmm. basketball track and field athlete that kind of thing um, well i mean it, you know it's funny because through this whole conversation you know what i'm thinking about right is being these days more a hammer coach than i am anything I mean, I can't think of an of an event where the you know where f f I guess you'd say fighting the eccentric yield or fighting the 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 yield on a force would be greater than at the low point or just beyond the low point of 
of uh, of the of the orbit in the hammer throw because we're talking. I think they've measured some of those with men. They're, they're in the hundreds of kilos. It's like right. two hundred fifty or three hundred kilos, and so that's the, you know that's what's here's what's interesting. Right here's what's interesting is when you start to see those numbers, you quickly realize that they're so far in excess of what someone could generate concentrically. And then you start to say, well, how they're doing it, how the hell are they doing it? And the only way they're doing it is because they're applying more force either isometrically or concentrically. You know, I'm not, hammer's probably the, uh, my weakest event to coach. Uh, I, would, I would be the first to admit that. But what I would see, like when I, I've sat in it on enough high performance meetings and uh, I'm familiar enough with the throws is that you probably got to have a really crazy combination during the, um, during, especially during the low point of isometric strength and I, uh, and eccentric strength. So what's probably happening, and this happens in sprinting to some extent too, is, uh, the, there's, there's actually joint lengthening, but the muscle is trying to, uh, the muscle is trying to stay isometric yes. and, and, um, what the joint is lengthening, not because the muscle is lengthening, but because there's the tendon is picking it up. And that's really where we can make our money in, tra in sports like track and field because it's energetically more efficient. The, uh, in terms of energetic cost, uh, if you're, say, someone that needs to do repeated bouts, an isometric contraction and an, even more so an eccentric contraction is uses less energy. It utilizes the tendon, stored elastic energy in tendons, um, and we're stronger, stronger and more powerful. So we can produce that force to a higher magnitude and also uh, do it faster. So, you know, that's, that's like uh, sporting success there. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're telling mm -hmm. me we can produce more totally. force, do it faster, and it's less energetically mm -hmm. uh, expensive. Where do I buy that? You know, that's, yeah, yeah, that's exactly. like, uh, that's going to help everybody. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, so back to the preparation for this then. So you're saying, you know, you don't, you don't start to really get, I mean, this is kind of a tricky conversation though, like, like you said, because we're always doing eccentrics to some degree, but when you start to focus on it or use it as a, as a means in training, okay, let's call it that, right? That's not, that's not inherent within normal plyometric work. You're loading and you're loading eccentrically and you're starting to do it over, over short periods of time. Um, you said that you, you know, your baseline or your, you know, your, your generally the ballpark is the athlete should be able to squat double body weight or 1.7 if it's female, I think you said, is that right? So is there anything else like what, like what about age or what about, um, you, you know, I mean, is there any, do you have a progression to get into it or how do you? Yeah. I mean, so know? what I would say is, uh, I, I probably slightly oversimplified my position on the progression, uh, or more than slightly, but, uh, mm. I will continue to develop concentric strength up until they're pretty dang strong, you know, in right. certain events say in our sport like track and field will certainly benefit from strength levels even ex in excess of that i think uh the slower the activity so say shot put is the slowest throwing event the, the stronger you need to be uh there that probably has the least eccentric forces involved of all the throwing events and and is the slowest so 
the the body can keep up with that to some extent. You know, the ball's coming out of the hand at 13.5 meters per second at, you know, if you're throwing 72 feet or something like that. So we can kind of keep up with that. But if we're talking about, say, sprinting, where the ground contact time is 0.08 of a second, now there's no way we can keep up with that ease concentrically. We have to do it eccentrically. So it doesn't mean I'm not gonna address these qualities earlier, but I'll continue to develop say the concentric strength qualities until they'll continue to be a focal point until we've reached it, what I would consider an adequate level. Uh, all the while though, I think it's important to kind of trickle in this eccentric stuff. So whether that is coming from, um, you know, plyometrics, you know, how are you going to tell a kid don't do plyometrics because your squat's not two times body weight. That's nonsense. I think, right. uh, you know, kids are going to go and jump off the playground at, and experience right. those loads a, any way they want. They're going to sprint. They're going to change direction, whatever. So they're already experiencing well in excess of two times body weight loads. But to do it in a controlled manner, to do it where uh, we're getting these really high loads, like in plyometrics, it's pretty well possible to get up to 10, 15 times body weight load on, um, you know, uh, mm -hmm. a, a more advanced plyometric activity. Um so I'll just gradually move my way over and then I'll start to introduce some of these concepts. Um, I would look at, so we've talked about concentric, which most people have a firm grasp around. And then we have isometric and then we have eccentric. With isometrics, I think we can break it down into two, two different kind of subcategories. We have isometrics where I could, if I wanted to overcome the load. So for example, I'm just volitionally pausing pausing you know, it right right so if you hold a cup of coffee that's an isometric right, right. you you could easily bring that cough, cup of coffee up to your right. mouth but you are choosing to hold it at a fixed point so that we could do that under load you know i've had plenty of athletes that can do isometrics at 90 plus percent for two or three second holds um and there's some benefit for that in terms of tendons and so forth and then we could do a sec the second category of isometrics would be uh, what is known as an overcoming isometric and, and the name is a little bit confusing because you actually don't overcome anything you are you you can't move the it's an immovable object right so if i were mm -hmm. to push against a wall as hard as possible and this is the this is the old stuff from the from the 70s that i think became quite popular or where you're just doing isometrics maximal effort against an immovable object that's a different kind of isometric altogether. And it, is, it has different adaptations. That's where you're truly getting to the middle point of that force velocity mm -hmm, curve. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then um, we can similarly do eccentrics where we control the descent. So for example, I could put 80% on the bar uh, for the bench press and I could lower it on a three or four count to my chest. And that would be slower than I might normally do. And just the mere fact that I'm controlling the descent to a greater extent than gravity is going to a, a work on eccentric capacity to some extent. Now now physiologically what's the what's the what's the impact here um, is it you know obviously it's a massive mechanical stress right but neurologically as well are you oh, also yeah. So, you, okay. so, so you, you're, so it's been proven that you're, you're, you are recruiting more, more fibers than you would. More fibers. And you, there's actually some 
this is uh, somewhat preliminary, but not fully conclusive. But the, the after really taxing eccentric, accentuated eccentric overload, where you're using loads in excess of the person's concentric maximum, you, you're causing some brain fatigue. So people really? do, yeah, you do worse on things like yeah, cognitive tasks or reaction tasks. And this is, you know, I think a lot of track wow. coaches have have some awareness of this just from a very general standpoint yeah. of like, oh, they talk about CNS fatigue or whatever. Well, what the hell is that? That's uh, yeah, but they don't. But but I've, I've never heard anybody make that connection, though. Right. Like I've, I've heard of people talk about CNS fatigue, but I've never heard it connected to eccentric loads. So, yeah, right. So e, e, CNS fatigue seems the we could go down a rabbit hole for that as well, but CNS fatigue yeah, no, seems yeah. to be associated with like super high volumes of work, which is most coaches don't haven't acknowledged that, but that's where the there's the biggest tie-in, but also this really high motor unit recruitment. And what gets the highest motor unit recruitment? Well, it's in, insanely high loads or, or insanely high forces. It doesn't have to be a high load, but it has to be an insanely high motor unit recruitment. So, you know, you do a triple jump, uh, or you do repeated bounding or you throw the hammer and you're experiencing loads that are magnitudes of order higher than your body weight, well, then guess what? That the motor unit recruitment is through the roof. You're near maximal motor unit recruitment. And that's what's, that's what's going to cause the, you know. But is that more, but how does that compare to the motor unit recruitment when you're, when you're at the, the upper end of the force velocity curve on the left? You can get higher motor unit recruitment with eccentrics than you can really? with concentrics. Yep. Okay. So there's that, always well, a little bit of a buffer. You know, the body's smart enough to realize, like, hey, if I, you know, that the, all the stories about the grandma lifting the car off the car off their child yes. or something like that. Yes, I use that all the time. Right. right. So like, yeah, that's that's, that's that's driven sports science to me. I think that's that's what we're all trying to figure out. Right. right. How the fuck so, did she do that? Right. <laughs> and and there's there's some truth to those urban legends. And I, I think uh, there's quite a few examples. You know, we see them in sport as well. You know, like how does how does a guy like Bob Beeman all of a sudden jump two and a half feet further than anyone's ever jumped before? Well, there's probably one of those factors is we basically turned off the governor of the human body. Uh, the body right, right. doesn't so, want... So I'm it, sorry to interrupt, but yep. so just, just for those who may not understand what we're talking about here, what we're talking about here is... The body's neurological, I don't know what the term would be, but I'll call a neurological reserve or, or a reserve of muscle fiber recruitment that is, you know, like you can never volitionally, voluntarily recruit 100% of the fibers in a muscle because, and this is how the theory goes, is that we have a certain amount of it that is reserved for when we really need it, like fight or flight response or, you yeah, know, Even then, I don't know that... Even then, I don't know that we really tap it out. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, no, no, of course. And, and It's dangerous. And the, the, I, yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and the, the urban legend is the mother walked into the garage and her son was working on the car. The jack failed. She went ah, ballistic and lifted this, this car off so he could get out from under. Right. Was, I don't, God knows when. It, it probably never happened, but, you know, whatever. It would have been back in the 50s or something. And that's what it's for. It's for when you, when you, uh, you know, when you go ballistic berserk and you, and you, but what, so, so, and I, the last, I remember the last 
the last I read on this was, I think I remember reading that the highest recruitment, voluntary recruitment that studies had shown was in the in the low to mid 80s percent. In yeah, terms I think of it, fiber. I think you can see a little bit higher than that in a trained individual. So one of the things okay. that training does is it necessarily. Right. Training affects neurology as well as the machinery. So it makes right. the machine, it makes the muscle fibers stronger and more resilient, but it also affects the uh, n neural side as well. And the neural side is how quickly we can recruit and how, how many things how we can many, recruit right. at the same time. So an untrained individual, and uh, I'm, I may be slightly dating myself here because I haven't checked on these numbers uh, for a couple of years, but uh, the, when I last studied physiology, which was, um, you know, as a student, which was like 10 years ago, uh, an untrained individual is probably capable of producing like 65% of motor unit recruitment. Uh, and this is why one of the reasons why you're not very strong right away, but then right. you do just a little bit of strength training and all of a sudden and you get strong, really stronger fast. right away. Yeah. Like the muscle's yeah. not bigger, it's not stronger, but no. you can recruit you're just using more, more of it. Yeah. yeah. And um, so we can get up, yeah, we can get up into that mid 90, 80s range, up, up maybe approaching 90 range. And there's still that little reserve there. You know, it's like the governor on a golf cart. They put that there so you don't race car, mm -hmm. drive the thing into the, into the lake. Uh, right, right. Same, thing with, same thing with your body, smart enough to realize like, whoa, if we, if we let this guy blow everything out, we might rip the tendons off the bone. So, um, so yeah, but, the, but in sport, we want to, we want to train the athlete, train the body to realize that it's safe to do those things if the athlete is trained to do them. Um, and that's where you're going to see the highest levels of, of uh, performance is when we, we come closer to our potential maximal motor unit recruitment. Okay, cool, cool. So I, I'm conscious of the time here and I don't want to, I, I know, I mean, you, we really had to search to find an hour where you and I could get together here because you're really busy. But there is one, there's a couple, well, there's one question for sure that I, I want to make sure I answer here or I want to make sure I ask you. Um, so all of this work eccentrically is all very slow, okay? Now, and there's some, you know, there's a debate around speed of movement and how you know, uh, the effect on speed qualities that that can have. Is there, is there any proof or evidence that working in this zone, this eccentric zone has a negative effect on speed qualities? So, so will it make you slower is what I'm saying. It may make you stronger, but will it make you slower? My guess is, is that it will make, and if it's done properly, it will make you faster because, you know, especially in sprinting, if, if you know your stride length is a function of your strength and, and eccentrically you're stronger it's, it can only help but w is is what am i what am i thinking there so two things one is uh we shouldn't think of eccentric training as slow so think of eccentric training as uh, it the upper end of eccentric training that the range that we should aspire to get to or come close to is actually very fast it is right. basically. It just looks slow. It won't even look slow. You know, imagine, oh, okay. Okay. imagine putting the, you know, you know, you have an athlete do a Nordic, right? A Nordic hamstring curl or whatever, and they, they reach their fail point and they look like they free fall. Well, that's right. that's eccentric strength. It's going to be pretty damn okay. fast. You have somebody put uh, 
have somebody put 130% of their bench press maximum on the bar, see how quickly that falls to their chest. They're going to be applying force, right, the, uh, to try to fight it, but it's going to move pretty damn fast, way faster than they could actually move concentrically. So it is, if we get to that upper limit, it's not slow. In fact, if we're moving it slow, it's probably close to our concentric maximum. Um, so I'd say... Oh, I see One, there's yes, a little yes, bit of a misnomer that eccentric has to be slow. We're, it's an attempt to slow down, but it doesn't mean it's slow. And then right. the other side of it is that um, if we, it, because it is a little more taxing neurologically, uh, that, that's my only concern with, with uh, effect negatively impacting someone's performance. So I hammer eccentric capacities up until about uh, three, four weeks out from a major competition, and then I'll back off. So by contrast, with more traditional methodology, I will I'll run that much closer to the, the end of the taper period. Um, I think that uh, it is, you're, you're, you're somewhat playing with fire on these eccentric mm -hmm. capacities, right? They're so challenging. Play that you just have to make sure like that the person can bounce back from them in time to compete at a high level. So I, I allow a little bit more rest uh, coming into our, our peaking periods following that. And I may com almost completely remove them, at that stimulus, at least from the weight room, and then just return to kind of traditional power work, uh, you know, in that, 60 to 80 percent range in the weight room and maybe even go to you know something that i learned from from boo was actually just to put put it on maintenance mode and just use the strength strength work as a hormonal stimulus and you just you just do your weight room work your squats or whatever at 70 80 percent and just kind of not not even necessarily go for high higher velocities you just make sure you're getting uh, touching base on that stimulus enough that it doesn't fall off. Uh, and then you've backed off on the eccentric, the heavy hitter eccentric stuff so much that, Hey, now those adaptations are going to shine through a week, two weeks, three weeks later. Uh, mm. But I don't, I don't uh, keep my foot on the foot on the gas too long with it because it's, I think it takes a, a little bit longer to, uh, it takes a long time to build to that far left side of the continuum. And then once you get there, um, you know, if you've got a championship period that you got to back off sooner on that stuff than mm -hmm. you would mm -hmm. more traditional work. Mm -hmm. Can you just, if, if you have enough time, two minutes, okay. Can you help me work something out? So what's going through my head right now is implementing this in the Bonner in the system I use, the Bonner check system, right? I don't know how much you know of it, um, but essentially we don't wave load volume and intensity. There's no changes in anything. Um, we we keep we keep the stimulus the same, and we just track measurables and wait for the athlete to adapt. Okay, uh, so let's that's our baseline. So I'm thinking the only thing that worries me about implementing something like this in that system is exactly that because we don't taper right like we don't we, there's no in this system the way we do it is the loads are um the loads are such that 
if when we get them right, there is there is no need to taper. The athlete will adapt to the loads, re, reach a peak, and then there's a whole bunch of other, you know, then there then there's a, then it's a different ball game after that. But once they're there, um, my only concern with doing because I'm really intrigued with this. I think in the hammer, I I think it would be really uh, would I I just got all kinds of things running through my head. But how would I manage that? Like especially. So- Go ahead. This is it is a little tricky because your concentric work or even your traditional field testing, it's way easier to track the measurables. And I'm really big on tracking metrics yes. as well, right? You you can see how much load you moved. Now that mm-hmm. we have velocity-based training technology, we can see how fast it's moved. But with totally. eccentric capacity, it's a lot more difficult. There there are, however, ways you can do it. So um some they all involve some pretty involved sports technology however so you either need access to force platforms or you need um say the flywheel device that i use has allows me to see eccentric power output and allows me to see eccentric overload so for example they i have them hooked up to do a squat they do a squat and i see that they produced i don't know 1500 newtons of force on the way up and then I want to see them fight it on the way down. In an ideal world, they produce 1,700 newtons of force on the way down. And, you know, there's my stimulus threshold. So I can start to see the measurables. Now, if you were just in the weight room and didn't have access to stuff like that, it does get a little bit more tricky. You're, you're, uh, it becomes similar to uh, trying to train power or uh you know, at, at lighter loads without velocity-based technology. You're basically just having to use your coach's eye and that kind of thing. Now, mm-hmm. some of the VBT systems out there uh, have the capacity to, to assess eccentric speeds, like all your accelerometer-based systems. They can basically see how well you, you turn, around, turn things around. Um, you know, a, a really good, uh, it's, it's not directly related to the the training that we're talking about, meaning uh, the weight room eccentric mm-hmm. capacity, but uh, is a really good indicator of the adaptations that occur to it is RSI. So RSI is reactive strength index, and that is uh, that is uh, founded on the same things that we talked about: minimization of amortization, producing a very high force very quickly. Uh, shock loading, a lot of emphasis on stretch shortening cycle and and tendon uh, strength. And that you could do with, uh, say, a push band or, you know, you can even do it with your your phone or something else. So that's just like a, uh, there's a couple different test protocols, but like a five, a five hop test or something like that. So there Mm -hmm. you would have a measurable of this quality at the very least. Um, Okay, cool. What what are the what are the okay last question and then we're then I'll then I'll let you go what so so just give me an idea of the general range of loading parameters you would use sets reps uh, I mean that's probably a big question given the scope of what you could do with these centrics but just generally speaking what are we talking about here Ballpark. so there's a couple interesting things that you have to take into account with eccentrics one is that we're actually the enduring capacity eccentrically is greater than it is concentrically. So for example, uh, take for example, an 85% load. If I use 85% of my concentric max, we know pretty well that I should be able to do about eight 
or sorry, six repetitions if I did it to failure, right? right. So that's reasonably well established. Everybody's going to be plus yeah. or minus one rep if it was a true 85%. Um, but concent or eccentrically, if we were to if we were to somehow use 85% of our eccentric maximum, we could actually do uh, somewhere around eight repetitions. So we have more resistance to fatigue eccentrically than concentrically. So that means I'll typically prescribe in slightly higher rep ranges. Uh, in the con con traditional weight room methodology, I tend to keep my rep ranges in the two to six rep range most of the year. Uh, Same. And, but eccentrically, I might prescribe a little bit higher. So somewhere like six to eight, um, just because of this fact that we don't have this rapid drop off in force production uh, like we see concentrically. Um, sets? I, sets, I keep that about the same. So, but here's the thing is uh, I will... I oftentimes use my overloaded eccentric work as uh, as uh, accessory work in ter times of a traditional template. So I, I'll still Olympic lift uh, quite often, and then we might follow it with, say, a couple sets of flywheel squats or maybe weight releaser squats. And say, uh, a lot of times I won't do all of the work at that upper limit threshold, and here's the here's the kind of nice thing you can you can do if you want to just dabble your dabble your way into it, or I, I even do it with my really experienced athletes. Is say we're going to eccentrically overload the squat, and that's on the agenda for today. Well, guess what? We're not going to do our first set at 125% of uh, you know back squat max. Right. We might take a set at 60% and move it as fast as we can, three reps, 75%. Um, now we're in that kind of no man's land. And then here we might do that. That's maybe where we start to do a slow eccentric or a, a, uh, uh, isometric or e slow eccentric. And then, and then now we throw the weight releasers on. So we may only do five sets of squats with only the first three or four, only last three or four using an eccentric overload. Or another way that I've done it is, um, we throw the weight releasers on for squat. The first repetition has the is slow and controlled at 125%, say, 125% load for the eccentric phase. They hit the bottom, that weight falls off. The actual weight on the bar is somewhere in the range of like 75, 80%, and then they just of do three concentric reps. Concentric or eccentric? So I've got 75% of concentric load maximum on the bar, and then okay. we've got maybe an additional, I don't know, something okay. to put them That's above 100% yeah. of maximum. So when... So when the hooks come off, you've got 75% of that's of right. concentric work. Yeah, that's what I was asking. And once about. they're on, it's somewhere around 105 to 115%, say. So uh, okay. maybe they do sets of three, and only that first descent was an eccentric overload. So oh, I, I okay. don't try to use equivalent volumes, total volumes, but I will use higher repetitions in a given set. Um, okay. And, so, and it, when I'm training isometrically, I tend to keep my isometric efforts in this probably the four to 10 second range if I'm using uh, the maximum effort isometrics. Okay, good. So just uh, uh, maybe this should have been obvious to me, but in terms of neural drive, uh, is there, there more, does, do you continue to get more neural drive as you go 
left along the uh, the eccentric curve, you or, do, is, yeah. or does it start going back towards the center? No, nope, seem to me it would be more, more as you kept going left, right? You, yes, that's right. You get more and more, and then um, okay. you know there is a there is a breaking point, which is kind of one of the things that you let off with. But I, I don't even know that right. that would be considered um, eccentric. It's not really part of the force velocity curve. It's just yeah, when your yeah. body's that's just, going, that's just, oh shit. Yeah, that's just. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I, I was just going to say that's just that's just stupid. But, <laughs> yeah, but but up to that point, wow, that's interesting. Okay, cool. All right, listen, Mike. This has been awesome, man. Like seriously good. I, I, I really, really appreciate it. You and I got to do more of this. Um, uh, your, your, uh, your, the rest of your lectures are going to be up, uh, in the next week or two. I've got, the, I've almost got the, uh, the sprint lecture done. I just got to, I think there's one more video to do. It won't take me long. So when this I'm, I'm only saying this now because as people listen to this, there are new courses of yours or new lectures of yours on the site. So I uh, really encourage people to go listen to that. So thanks for everything. Don't forget to say hi to my friend, Allison in uh, Cary there. I sent her an email and she hasn't replied. So I don't know what that, I don't know what that <laughs> means, but anyways, anyways, thanks. Thanks for everything. Good luck with your business, your work and everything that you do. And, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Derek. Take care. All right. Bye.